This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to Coronapod. In this show, we're going to bring you nature's take on the latest COVID-19 developments. And we'll be speaking to experts around the world about research during the pandemic. I really don't know how this plays out. We also don't know a ton about this, you know, virus. So there's so many open questions. I just have a really hard time making predictions because I don't know how the outbreak's going to change. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Coronapod. My name's Noah Baker and I'm joined by Features Editor Richard Van Norden. Unfortunately, Coronapod regular Amy Maxman is not able to be with us this week, but Richard and I are going to power on anyway and see if we can bring you some latest news. Richard, how's your week been? Yeah, it's been pretty good, thanks Noah. Had the uh, the day off on Monday, went for a long walk, <laughs> so I'm rejuvenated. <laughs> rejuvenated, I think as far as one can be rejuvenated at the moment. That's right. So this week, we're going to talk about something that we have actually talked about before on Coronapod, but we're going to dig into it a little bit, which is hydroxychloroquine. Now, this is a potential treatment for COVID-19, which has been bandied about by many people. There are lots and lots of trials and studies that have been going. And this week, there's been a whole new development or a whole new series of developments with hydroxychloroquine. So first off, I think the biggest news has been there is a paper released from the Lancet of a large observational study. Richard, tell me what's going on with that. Yeah, so this paper was a huge study, but it was observational, as you say meaning that it's not a randomised controlled trial. They're not dividing their patients randomly into matched groups and giving some hydroxychloroquine and some not without knowing who. That's the gold standard. That's some of the trials underway. This, they just looked at many thousands of patients who were in hospital around the world and saw what those patients got, what they were given, and what happened to them. And they found that around 11,000 people who didn't get any treatment, 9% died. Of course, this is people in hospital already. But of 2,000 people on chloroquine, 16% died. And of 3,000 people on hydroxychloroquine, 18% died. Uh, These are chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine, a slight variance of the same old malaria drug. Even more worryingly, perhaps, people who were given chloroquine together with an antibiotic, a macrolide, people thought there would be some kind of synergistic effect between uh, the antibiotic and the chloroquine. In those cases, numbering again a few thousand people, 22% died. So the numbers don't look great. It looks like the people in the hospital who got the chloroquine or variants thereof were more likely to die. Now, 
of course, it's just an observational study. We don't really know yet whether it was the sicker people who were given the chloroquine, but the people who did this study did try to control for some factors as far as they could. That is, that they recorded some things about the patients and they tried to statistically control for those things, like their obesity, whether they were smokers, their age, things like that. So they tried as best they could to match the patients up. So this was quite worrying because it certainly didn't show that there was any clear benefit and it potentially showed that there was actually harm for giving this drug to people. And that study, published in The Lancet, has had a huge number of quite confusing knock-on effects this week on all the other randomised clinical trials that are underway. So um, as I'm talking to you, the World Health Organization has paused enrolment in its massive trial of the drug. Regulators in the UK and in France and in Australia, they have paused enrolment in most of their trials, although there's one in the UK that's still going on. And doctors in uh, France have been told you can't prescribe this drug outside of clinical trials. So given that a lot of people were taking this drug, that's quite a big change. Now, confusingly, in India, this drug is still being recommended to high-risk frontline workers like healthcare workers and police personnel as uh, prophylaxis against COVID-19, even though there is no randomised controlled data for hydrochloroquine as prophylaxis yet. And India's medical regulators say that they do have unpublished data that, that say, according to them, that there is some benefit. So we're really in this confusing state where a lot of trials have been stopped, some are still going on, and some countries like India are still thinking that this drug can show benefit. And I think this is one of the things that's really difficult about studies that are coming out like this really, really quickly at such a pressured time. And, you know, there were some things that were immediately picked on by critics saying, you know, well, you've tried to control for this, but surely it makes a lot of sense that the people that are the most sick are the ones that are going to get the most sort of treatment and the most treatment options. And so, you know, no matter how much you try to control for that, that might skew things. And other people in other trials have said, well, we haven't seen these kind of safety effects. I think the WHO haven't seen these kinds of problems in their safety trials to date, and yet it is still such a significant figure that it's causing kind of quite a significant impact to other trials around the world. Right. I mean, it's possible that these trials will resume quite quickly. As you say, the WHO has said it hasn't seen signals of problems yet in in its trial. And in the UK, the UK's biggest trial of 10,000 people called the Recovery Trial As soon as this Lancet paper came out, they uh, consulted members of their safety board and the board said, well, there's nothing clear in here, according to the board, that says that participants are definitely being harmed by receiving hydroxychloroquine. And as a result, this big trial has been allowed to continue enrolling participants. So it's not clear what's going to happen. And the author of the Lancet study, Mandeep Mehra, a cardiologist, he doesn't support ending the clinical trials. He's saying we we want clinical trials, but he thinks that his observational work is kind of helping to bring balance to the public discourse about this drug. He points out that even before this Lancet study came out, there was some data suggesting there wasn't that much clear benefit from hydroxychloroquine. We needed the clinical trials, to be sure. But people are really taking it with almost with evangelism anyway, Donald Trump perhaps being the most famous person who says that he takes it. 
So he views his trial as a, a useful corrective, but you could argue that it's just caused even more confusion among the public. And we really don't know at all what to think about hydroxychloroquine right now. And at the moment, many of the trials that we wanted to happen to find out are paused. It's a really interesting one. When we've talked about chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine before on the show, we've talked about Donald Trump touting it as a wonder drug, as this sort of solution that's going to come along and, and fix the crisis and how that might impact things. And we've said, well, you know, the thing is we need more trials. But often what we've been talking about is people like Donald Trump making statements that are not backed up by the evidence yet and we need to get the evidence here and now we've actually got a kind of a disagreement almost within the people that are generating the evidence now the trials are all a bit confused as well it's it's like the the story has muddied yet further around this drug this is medical science i mean scientists live in a perpetual state of uncertainty and hoping to narrow that uncertainty to say something definitive and for the moment we we don't really have this for this drug the whole reason that it is attractive as a drug and why, for example, India is still wanting to use it is that, I mean, it is used to treat people with malaria and it's also approved to treat people with lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. And in, in fact, when there was so much enthusiasm for the drug last month, people with those conditions were saying, well, hang on a minute, I can't get the drug that I need for my condition. Now, there's even been questions about some fundamental things about the Lancet study itself, the numbers in the Lancet study, quite apart from it being an observational study. Some researchers have said, I've seen some oddities, for example, all the parts of the world that were studied in this analysis, the smoking rates and the obesity rates of all of these people have been reported as nearly equal. That seems very unlikely what's going on there. And uh, Mera says, oh, we erroneously listed our corrected modelled data for those kinds of things, rather than the raw data. We'd already made the comparison and adjusted, and we accidentally listed that, not the raw data. So, you know, he's saying things like that, but unfortunately, researchers don't even have the raw data because the whole work relies on proprietary data that was gathered from medical centres and hospitals by a company called Surgisphere Corporation in Chicago. So it's like a perfect storm of raw data not being available, observational study, important, lots of people in this study, but still really hard to tell what it tells us really about hydroxychloroquine. I mean, the knock-on effect of this may be that it really dampens down the enthusiasm for people not only wanting to take this drug, but even wanting to enrol in trials to get this drug. And this is kind of ironic, because a few months ago, we were running a story saying that when people enrolled in clinical trials, they all wanted this drug. And they said, give me this drug, I want the hydroxychloroquine, please. And they were even worried that they didn't want to get placebo. Of course, they wouldn't know. And this was causing problems testing other potential treatments in the clinical trials. Now you might think, well, people are like, well, I don't, I don't want that hydroxychloroquine, please. Uh, I want the other drug. So that might make it harder to finish the trials that have been starting. Of course, a bigger problem on that line is that in many clinical trial hotspots like the United States and Europe, the pandemic or the first wave of the pandemic right now is waning slightly. And that means that the pool of potential clinical trial participants, people coming into hospital, is drying up a bit. So that also is concerning some researchers because it means we might not have the evidence we need to know which medicines are best when the second wave, if it is to come, follows. 
I would never have predicted that we would be in a position now where we're discussing whether or not clinical trials were going to struggle to get participants when we were on this podcast four or five weeks ago saying clinical trials are struggling to get going because people will only accept chloroquine. And now it's the polar opposite thing can happen so quickly. I think it's also really interesting in a situation like this where scientific trials and preprints have become so tied up with politics as well that political opinions can have such a big impact on science in a way that perhaps they wouldn't otherwise do. You know, the Medical Research Board in India has continued to approve this chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine for prophylaxis, but there have also been accusations thrown at this decision from scientists that are pointing out that the majority of the world's chloroquine is produced in India. Is that a conflict of interest there? Is there a reason that there may be a political decision to keep promoting the use of chloroquine? Because that's something that would benefit that country. You know, these are questions that don't usually plague clinical trials of drugs at this stage. Yeah, completely. I mean, it's full of politics, um, which is a real shame, because we really need to know whether this drug is going to show benefit. I mean, there's not that many other drugs in the World Health Organization's trial. They are testing remdesivir, which we should say is the one drug that has seemed to show promise in a rigorous clinical trial. And that, remembering again, it doesn't appear to lessen one's chance of dying if one's in hospital and one is given remdesivir, but it does seem to speed up the time to recovery. But even that drug has to be administered intravenously over the course of several days in hospital. So it's not the same as a relatively cheap and widely available drug like hydroxychloroquine. How much of the confusion that we're currently seeing can be put down to early data that perhaps usually wouldn't be released on this scale or certainly reported on this scale causing confusion? You know, perhaps normally in a trial like this, there would be more time to go through to do analyses that wouldn't be jumped on and people wouldn't react so almost impulsively to pieces of data they find. You know, how much of this is sort of a curse of rushed science? Well, it's true that a huge proportion of the studies that come out generally about COVID-19 are preprints, meaning they've been released before peer review. In fact, it looks like now it's about a quarter of all the research articles that are coming out are coming out as preprints. This Lancet study did not come out as preprint first. It was peer-reviewed first, so any massive problems ought to have been ironed out. But on the other hand, the peer reviews itself have been sped up. One study looked at 14 medical journals and found that they published papers on coronavirus, peer-reviewed papers, that is, nearly twice as fast as the other papers, largely because they sped up the peer review. Everyone wants to get out both the kind of dispatches from the front line as fast as they can, and they want to get out the peer-reviewed papers as fast as they can. And I think it's putting journals under a lot of strain and putting peer reviewers under a lot of strain. And it's just a really tough balancing act between getting the data out there and having it sufficiently peer-reviewed that a message can be sent out to the public and everyone around the world that is not going to be misunderstood or misinterpreted. I can't help but wonder whether or not this paper from The Lancet was rushed through peer review. I'm actually not sure when it was submitted because that information isn't on the paper anywhere. But, you know, there are things in this which are potentially things you'd expect peer reviewers to pick up, you know, using modelled data instead of raw data is precisely the kind of thing that you'd hope a peer reviewer would pick up unless perhaps they were being rushed. But maybe I'm speculating too much here. Right. I mean, well, that's one of the things about peer review is that it very much does not pick up on all these kinds of mistakes. It is simply a set of checks by qualified people 
who don't have much time to make those checks. And there's all kinds of suggestions about how peer review can be improved. But we have noticed that that peer review is really sped up. And um, we have a a sort of series coming out next week on what science might look like after this pandemic. And one of the pieces is on what publishing might look like. And um, people thought it was impressive, in a a way, how fast peer review was working, but that there were mistakes. And then it, it didn't seem likely that really papers could be peer reviewed this fast all the time. It seemed like a kind of emergency situation that would not hold true in the normal course of science. I don't know whether in this case, you know, the Lancet could have pushed back a bit and said, well, hang on a minute, you know, you've, you've got to make the raw data available here to other researchers to check. And even if you can't publish that raw data because, of, because it's proprietary, you know, maybe there could have been a little bit more answering of these questions like, was it the sicker people who were given hydroxychloroquine, given the enormous impact that this study is going to have? But these are kind of easy questions to see in hindsight, and I don't know if they were obvious at the time that the paper was being peer-reviewed. I think you and I and people at Nature and the researchers that we speak to every day are very used to, you know, robust scientific debate. But then you get in a situation where you are now where every piece of science that's coming out has the potential to be spread across the front page of a newspaper. And it's almost like the way things are interpreted is very, very different. So I think science is often seen by members of the general public to be this relatively infallible um, institution where people say things that are correct. And if a scientist said it, it's right. And if scientists disagree, then that throws everything into doubt because there isn't necessarily an understanding that there is a robust scientific debate. That's part of the way that science is done and suddenly you splash that across a newspaper and I worry that it will impact how much people will even trust the papers that are coming out because, you know, what they see as scientists can't agree is actually just normal scientific discourse but being presented differently. Yeah, I think that it's just something that everyone should bear in mind. I would almost recommend to scientists when they're talking to journalists to say, yes, we can't agree, but this is what science is. Please write that in the story, because yeah, absolutely. Um, we're, we're really seeing this just playing out really publicly, and, and often this, you know, this just isn't clear. A lot of studies are going up as preprints that are quite well done, and scientists debate them and pick holes in them. And then it suddenly feels very different when it's on the front pages of all the newspapers and everyone is shouting at each other. That's actually happened this week with another study which is from the group in Germany, from Christian Josten, and they were talking about this question of whether children are more susceptible or less susceptible to infection than our adults. And Christian Josten's group put up a preprint, and they said they'd measured the viral load in, in children and adults, and they'd found it to be, when doing some statistical tests, about the same in children and adults. That didn't answer all our questions, but it was an interesting observation. And then a statistician, David Spiegelhalter, in here in the UK, said that the statistical test was the wrong kind of test, and that in fact, he thought, that with the right statistical test would show that children's viral load was a quarter that of adults. And this is sort of classic scientist v. scientist, you would call it good-natured debate, but a German newspaper got hold of this and has blown it up into a sort of attack on Drosten and a a, a big sensational story and I think Spiegelhalter has actually sort of distanced himself from this newspaper story. I'm not sure that the the arguments around this new virus that's hit us are you know they're any more vociferous or um, disagreeable than you would expect at this stage but we're sort of seeing this typical progress in science being sort of 
blown up and put onto the front page and really mattering. Okay, well, there's going to be a lot to keep up with on the various twists and turns in the chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine saga. I'm sure that it will be mentioned again on this podcast. But before the end of this show, let's turn to our usual ending segment, which is one good thing. I'm going to start this week. So as regular listeners to Corona Pub will know, I'm currently hiding out in the countryside. And being in the countryside has advantages and disadvantages. My internet connection is very slow. But one of the advantages is that I am surrounded by elder trees, which are very, very common here in the UK. And all of the elder trees are now in flower. And I am in a position where I have lots of space and it's easy to sterilise things. And all these things have come together to make elderflower champagne. So I've been doing some brewing from home. We've talked about quarantinis or coronatinis on the show before. Now I am brewing somewhere in the region of 150 litres of elderflower champagne currently. And I say brewing, really, it's just cutting a load of elderflowers off some trees and putting them in a bucket with some water. That's about it. It's not taking me very much time, but I'm looking forward to having elderflower champagne for the rest of the year. It's a goodie, a hedgerow brew. That is amazing. I really hope I get to taste some. (laughs) I will bring some bottles in. I'm going to have a lot left over, I'm sure. (laughs) I wanted to recommend... uh, It's not going to be anything as amazing as making my own elderflower champagne. It's more entertainment on YouTube. So this is uh, Dennis Shuryev's YouTube channel. And about the beginning of this pandemic, he started using open source AI tools to put high resolution and sometimes colour back into century-old film reels. And we're actually going way back to essentially some of the earliest film reels ever done way back in the 19th century and also in the early 20th century and it's incredible what these algorithms that insert this color that slow down the video that sharpen things up slightly artificially it ends up looking a bit like a modern film but you're walking through san francisco before the 1906 earthquake or you're uh, looking into an english garden in the 1880s It's just brilliant. Uh, There's also a soundtrack on these films as well, which is obviously entirely made up because these are silent film reels. But it is a wonderful YouTube channel, and it's really sort of entertaining to take yourself back a century or more while we're all, well, some of us are cooped up at home. I have to say, when you first sent me a link to this, I was enthralled. I think as a filmmaker, trying to work out how you can take grainy footage, which I deal with quite a lot of because researchers send me things. Who still uses Windows Movie Maker apart from scientific researchers? If I could use some of these algorithms to make them into big, pretty 4K video, I would love it. It is pretty amazing. There's a picture that went around a little while ago that every so often I see pop up again on my social media feeds. And it's not a video. It's nothing like as clever as this. It's a photograph of Charlie Chaplin from 1916 that's been colourised and cleaned up so it looks like a modern photograph. And every time I see it, I think, my God, you are just a modern day 26-year-old that lives in Bushwick or Hackney in East London The clothing is the same. The style is the same. It's really bizarre to sort of see someone from 1916 looking so much like someone I'd expect to see at a trendy bar. Wow. I'm just looking at it. And yes. Wow. Messy hair and all. That's incredible. (laughs) Messy hair and all. That's what I think of those people. (laughs) (laughs) The hipsters, you know. Okay, well, with that, Let's draw this week to a close. Richard, thank you so much for chatting to me this week on Coronapod. And I will speak to you next week for episode 12, which will be three months into this pandemic. Richard, thank you very much. Thanks, Noah. 
As ever in the show, we also have a second half. And this week, as I did last week, I'm going to bring you a couple of summaries of the latest COVID-19 research. Remember, you can find all of these summaries over at nature.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. There's a blog that's being updated every day with some of the key papers. First up, we've got a preprint uploaded to MedArchive on the 22nd of May. Now, this paper suggests that a small number of super spreaders are responsible for seeding the virus across Israel. A team from Tel Aviv University sequenced and analysed more than 200 SARS-CoV-2 genomes from people across Israel. Their analysis showed that 80% of infections were transmitted by only 1-10% to of people, so-called super spreaders. The analysis also found that travellers from the United States and Europe carried the virus to Israel, but US travellers were responsible for a disproportionate share of the viral spread. One possible explanation for that is that Israel began restricting entry to people from Europe before it banned US arrivals, which gave US visitors more time to spread the virus. The study has not yet been peer-reviewed. And next up, another study about transmission dynamics, but this time set in New York City. The preprint from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health drew a link between infection and commuting. In New York City, deaths and hospitalizations from COVID-19 have varied wildly between the city's neighbourhoods, and researchers wanted to find out why. They compiled coronavirus test results from about 1,700 women that came to six city hospitals to give birth. The team analysed the postal codes of the infected women to estimate the disease prevalence in neighbourhoods. Then they compared this information with location data from Facebook about the number of trips every day in and out of each neighbourhood. And there lay the correlation between a neighbourhood's infection rate and the number of trips taken by its residents. The authors say that many of these commuters are probably essential workers and that they should be protected further to prevent the virus's spread. And finally, we've got an update on DNA vaccines. This paper was published in Science on the 20th of May and it showed that DNA vaccines protected monkeys from coronavirus. Researchers at Harvard Medical School in Boston explored vaccines composed of DNA As you heard last week, this type of vaccine prompts the recipient's cells to make the pathogen or its components and in turn stimulate the immune system, hopefully developing immunity. The researchers developed six DNA vaccines based on the coronavirus spike protein and tested them in rhesus macaques. The animals mounted an antibody response similar to that seen in macaques and people who've recovered from SARS-CoV-2 infection. The team then gave doses of coronavirus to the vaccinated monkeys – which developed only mild illness. Viral multiplication in the animals was generally lower than in unvaccinated monkeys, probably because the vaccinated animal's immune system was keeping the virus in check. And that's it for another episode of Coronapod. You can join us next week for episode 12. Meanwhile, we're publishing the regular nature podcast every Wednesday still, and that's a coronavirus-free zone if you need a bit of a break. This week we've got stories about a new way to make hydrogen fuel using only light and an answer to a long-standing cosmic mystery. You can find that wherever you found this. If you have any questions or thoughts about Coronapod, or the Nature Podcast for that matter, we'd really like to hear from you. You can get in contact on Twitter at Nature Podcast, or if you prefer email, podcast at nature.com. 
In the meantime, I'll put links to everything we've discussed on today's episode of CoronaPod in the show notes so you can read more if you'd like. Until next week, I'm Noah Baker. Stay safe. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.